G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Professor Peter Riddell is joining us. He's Vice Principal Academic at the Melbourne School of Theology. Peter is an expert on Islam and specialises in contexts in Southeast Asia, but also we're talking globally here because Peter is Professional Research Associate in the Department of History at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. He's widely published on the study of Southeast Asia, Islam and Christian-Muslim relations. Uh, So I want to make a special welcome to 2020 to uh, Peter Riddell. Peter, welcome along. Thank you, Neil. Thank you for the welcome. Peter, uh, as I've just introduced you and introduced our topic today, uh, we have become, and perhaps rightly so, fixated on the Christchurch terror attack, uh, but there is a big context here in which this terror attack actually falls. Uh, what are your thoughts for the general feeling about what's happened in Christchurch and what's going on around the world? Yes, well, look, I mean, there is a huge context. Perhaps uh, Christchurch is certainly the place to start here. It's, uh, we are reeling. Um, there have been terror attacks in our region before, of course. Um, in Australia, there have been terror attacks, but nothing on this scale. Um, an attack by a, uh, a white supremacist on two mosques in New Zealand that has killed 50 people and left scores injured is unparalleled um, in in our region and it is appalling beyond words um, it's we, we there are many things we can focus on we can focus on the uh, the response of the authorities um, we can focus on the the mind of the the murderer himself um, because he issued a uh, a manifesto which i've i've had a look at um, to try and fathom i mean one can't understand one can never understand how somebody could do such a thing but what was going on in the man's mind um the the um and the place of this in in the world setting is also worth focusing on but it's good to start with the new zealand setting as well and of course uh, what we've got is obviously uh local reporting in new zealand and in australia because the attacker was an australian uh, there's this direct link of course there should be extensive and deep reporting Uh, But this is not just restricted to our own region because this attack has been reported all over the world. The immensity of the attack is one of those things that makes it outstanding. Uh, But, of course, all over the world, the global media has been talking about this. And we even have uh, the development where there's an international diplomatic incident that's developing now between Turkey and Australia with the uh, Turkish president uh, making some comments uh, about our diggers. Uh, what are your thoughts for the, the way that the world's media has been so uh, significantly interested in what's been happening down under? Yes, well, um, at the time that the, uh, well, within hours of the attack happening, I um, I looked closely at, uh, through through my um, uh, 
the the um, my own television, just looking to see how it was being reported around the world, because I'm, I've been involved several years now in a project which looks at how the media is reporting on attacks on religious communities, be they Christian, be they Muslim, asking the question, well, how is the mainstream media reporting those? And I was really struck how, um, you know, within minutes, really, of the attack uh, taking place in New Zealand, the main channels in the US, uh, in Britain, um, in Australia, of course, in New Zealand and beyond were really following this very, very closely. And with such massive international coverage, uh, then, yes, it does reach into places like Turkey, and we have heard this response, this amazing sort of unfathomable response by, uh, by Pre- President um, um, Erdogan, Erdogan of, of Turkey, yes, who has uh, made some of his characteristically clumsy statements, which has uh, you know, almost set up a diplomatic incident. I mean, he is a loose cannon at the best of times, and we see no better example, no clearer example than what he said about this most recent uh, terror attack in New Zealand. And I want to open our talkback line shortly and listeners might have their own concerns to raise about that and uh, we'll be cautious about how we approach these things through our conversation today but I don't want to leave listeners without an opportunity to have their say on just the seriousness of that sort of concern that there is a international diplomatic incident that has arisen and that of course uh, Anzac Day is on its way and uh, ordinary Aussies directly affected by the sorts of threats uh, that have come from the Turkish president. Now, stark differences on the way that the media reports on these sorts of incidents because uh, there's been other recent massacres uh, in Africa and uh, no doubt lots of other nations, but uh, the media hasn't taken any much uh, serious uh, uh, interest in some of those other massacres. This is one of the things that you've been researching, Peter. Yes, indeed. Um, w- what I'm looking at in a comparative sense, Neil, is I'm looking to see how the world's mainstream media report terror attacks in the West compared with ongoing terror attacks in parts of Africa, for example, or in Pakistan. Um, so, for example, if we look at... Um, and here we're moving on specifically from the New Zealand case, but it, it fits into the conversation. If we look at... Uh, large-scale terror attacks that take place in Western locations, such as in Christchurch last week, or such as in uh, Paris that took place at the Butterclub Theatre in November 2015, or such as the Manchester attacks in in, uh, April of 2017, there is massive and very, very detailed coverage of of those, of the, the effect of those attacks, and there should be too. Um, so viewers are able to to observe the detail, they're able to empathise with the victims, they're able to, in a sense, live the experience in an empathetic um, way, Um, and that's appropriate. Um, But then at the same time, recently, in fact, there's a a report in today's press, uh, this is in the Christian press, about an attack that took place on March the 16th, which was just recently, um, where, uh, and I, I'm, I'm reading the, the beginning of the report, which says Muslim Fulani herdsmen killed 10 Christians in southern Kaduna State in Nigeria on Saturday, bringing the lives lost in the past five weeks to 140, with 160 houses destroyed. So my question is, what has to be done to raise the level of coverage of such um, persecution and such terror in African communities 
so that it receives the same level of attention which is appropriately received in attacks in the West, such as Christchurch or Manchester or Paris. In fact, in my introduction, I said that if we were reporting on terror, uh, the events that are happening around the world, uh, that's all we would talk about because there is so much of it going on. In fact, I'm not sure whether you're aware, but in my preparation for our conversation today, I did a little research of my own. And on the very same day as those shootings in the mosques in Christchurch, uh, there were a number of attacks that were happening around the world. Now, there was 13 civilians who died in attacks in Mozambique's Cabo Delgado province, uh, where Islamists had terrorised villages for more than a year. Six people were killed by suicide bombers dressed in women's clothing. They attacked people fleeing the Islamic State's final holdout in Syria. Boko Haram, again into Africa here, uh, attacked a Christian village in Nigeria, killing one person, abducting two sisters and destroying the village church and six houses. Uh, on the same day as the Christchurch shootings, the Christian Post reported that since February 2019, Islamic Fulani tribesmen had murdered 120 Christians and destroyed 140 houses in Nigeria. And, uh, and I suspect the list goes on even further, but this was happening on the very same day as the Christchurch attacks. And uh, so it, it does give us a little more context, doesn't it? And and as you say, Peter, doesn't matter whether they're attacks by Muslims against Christians or whether it is a, a supremacist who makes an attack against Muslims. All of these are deplorable. Indeed. Indeed, Neil. And there are, there are two thoughts that I have here. Um, the first thought is that... Um, of course, we want to we want to we want to assure any listeners that we are in in our comments, the comments I've made, the comments that you've just made. In no way are we downplaying the importance of focusing on the attack on Muslim communities in Christchurch. We, we deplore that, and that that is absolutely clear. So there's no question of downplaying any any attacks, but it is a question of gaining equity so that some communities have a voice who are suffering. So that's my first thought. And the second thought, which I'll develop as, we, as our conversation goes on, is with all of these terrible events taking place, sadly, but I think it needs to be explored, I think there is potential for these, these kinds of attacks to actually bring Christians and Muslims together in shared suffering. And we can talk more about that as we go on. Uh, some Facebook comments coming through, one from Steve who says, the harsh reality is that the media will focus on what we want to hear. Usually, that is, any broadcast that occurs in the West because we are in the West can readily identify with it. Third world countries are sadly out of sight, out of mind. It's tragic, but that's a reality. Uh, I think uh, he's probably hit the nail on the head. What are your thoughts uh, for Steve and his comment on Facebook, Peter? Well, look, in pragmatic terms, I'm sure he's absolutely right. But in terms of uh, where the world is going, I mean, we do live in the global age. Uh, globalism is, is really being, it's being pushed front and centre in public discourse um, and suffering of people in communities that are outside the cameras 
tends to produce massive migration and refugee flows. Part of the reason that we're seeing, you know, the vast numbers of refugees fleeing out of Africa is because of what's happening in Africa. So uh, the, the media, the, you know, the international media does need to lift its game in terms of the level of, of coverage that it gives to third world locations as, as it does to the West. Uh, let's take some calls. Joseph is on the line from Blacktown in Sydney. Hello, Joseph. Welcome along. Oh, thank you very much for taking my call. Joseph, what are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are that we, we see that the um, many of the platforms for for um, speech and 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 for for those that comment um, that are, that are heard, you know, uh, widespread throughout our community have, have kind of in many ways been been hijacked by very left leaning um, uh, personalities. You always seem to be, hear the loudest voices, seem to be the ones that that, that tend to be taking us away from biblical Christianity down to a more worldly. Um, uh, uh, social engineering style of, of, of talk, you know, where, um, you know, prosperity, uh, as we know, based on our, our Christian values, is frowned upon. Uh, and it's, it, it, it's almost like we see like a spirit of Esau in the world, in the Western world today, despising our inheritance. And a lot of it is coming from our, inst- our learning institutions, from the universities. It's sort of creeping into politics because the politics are very concerned, politicians about, you know, their, their voter bases. Um, I think it's part of this great delusion that we uh, we see Paul speaking about in, in um, the second chapter of Thessalonians. But I just want to call upon those that profess to be Christians, the church, to, to be the salt and the light in these difficult times, because, you know, a big test for us is coming up shortly in, in our national election, because there's a real Trojan horse uh, uh, coming in the form of, you know, this um, transgender um, uh, toxic theology. There's all sorts of things that are coming upon us uh, with the coming election, but uh, let's get a a thought or two on some of those things being raised there by Joseph. Uh, Peter Riddell, your thoughts? Well, yes, I mean, Joseph raises quite a number of issues there, and we can't deal with them all all, uh, at once, but um, I mean, I think it's true that clearly the the religious identity of of our of our uh, nation has has changed very very strongly. Um, you know, religious uh, conversations are far less central than they once used to be, and therefore the the religious imperative and the the sort of in a sense God consciousness, the consciousness of, 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 of Christian values is, is far less. And I think clearly we, they do need to be brought back to front and centre. Uh, that would help us create a better society. Joseph from Blacktown, thank you so much for your comment. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. Let's hear from Graham in Cleveland in Queensland. Hello, Graham. Well, good morning. Graham, what are your thoughts? Um, it, it really saddens me to, to think that the relationship between Australia and Turkey and New Zealand, I guess, is, is being put under threat because we've had a, a century of, of building a great relationship uh, a relationship of forgiveness and, and moving forward together and I think it's really sad to see this happening and the other thing um, and, and to not not make light of any of the um, religious or diplomatic um, uh, outflow that might come from this is there's also an economic implication I think because the um, the amount of uh, tourist income that comes from um, Australians, New Zealanders and, and, and other countries as well, like Britain and, and, and uh, India. Let's not forget that they lost thousands of people at Gallipoli as well. And uh, I think the local Turkish population is going to suffer uh, as a result of this decision. 
Uh, good thoughts there, Graham. There is an economic impact when the Turkish president makes those sorts of comments because they do have many people who rely on uh, tourist dollars that come from places like Australia and from the UK. Uh, a thought or two from Peter Riddell. Yes, well, uh, helpful comments. Thank you, Graham. Um, we need to remind ourselves, of course, that President Erdogan is coming into, uh, you know, he's speaking in a pre-election period. Um, he wants to raise support among his constituency. He, he is under the pump in terms of uh, the level of support he has. Um, will he win? Will he get the support that he needs? Well, time will tell. But Turkey is a country that is incredibly divided at the moment. Uh, it's divided between the government and the supporters of the Gulen movement and the secularist group. Many, many Turks are heavily disenchanted and will not take, will not a- 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 allocate any importance to the, to the words of um, President Erdogan. So, in a sense, the, the problem lies between President Erdogan and his supporters and, and others. Um, we, not all Turks are you know, he's not speaking for all Turks by any means, and in fact, many Turks in Australia are as alienated from President Erdogan as Australians would be from his present comments. Thank you so much to Graham from Cleveland. And just before we take another uh, comment or uh, question from uh, listeners, uh, thought comes to mind here. Of course, uh, on at Anzac Cove, uh, where the blood of our uh, grandfathers. Uh, was shed. I mean, this is such a significant place. It's uh, it's almost got a religious significance, and Anzac Day is coming very soon. Uh, in the mind of uh, President Erdogan, uh, there is a certain sense in which the story is bigger than Anzac Cove, because even though we have lost our diggers uh, on the shores at Gallipoli, of course, the Allied forces went on to win the Dardanelles campaign, and then, of course, uh, moved across uh, into North Africa and uh, beyond, and, of course, the dismantling of the Ottoman Empire. I mean, these are now big, big questions, uh, but uh, and perhaps uh, premature in talking about it, I don't know, but, uh, but your thoughts, Peter, on the overall, because, yes, while we would see that as a sacred site, and we have appreciated the love of the Turks towards our ancestors, uh, there might be a bigger picture at play here. Well, yes, in several ways. Um, I mean, Turkey did lose the First World War. Um, Australians were very much a part of, of the Allied victory over the Turks in the First World War. Yes, we all remember the last recorded charge of cavalry in human history was by the Australian light horse at Beersheba in, uh, in um, October of 1917. Um, so Australians played a big part in the unravelling of the Ottoman Empire and the loss of the Ottoman Empire, the, the Turks subsequently had a, had a revolution. They got rid of the, 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 uh, the caliphate. They abolished the caliphate. They became a secular republic. And now what we're seeing 100 years later is Turks in a tremendous struggle with some trying to re-establish some of the past glories of the Ottoman Empire and, and make their country more Islamic and many, many other Turks incredibly opposed to that. So Turkey itself is torn apart. It's interesting to watch um, uh, Turks in Australia are similarly, similarly divided. So there are much bigger pictures that are going on here. President, President Erdogan's comments are not said within a vacuum. They're set within a particular context. There is a big context there that needs to be explored at some point. Let's take another call. Nigel is on the line from Margaret River in WA. Hello, Nigel. Yep, good morning. Nigel, what are your thoughts? Terrorism is not new. Crucifixion 
is clearly was clearly an act of terrorism designed to invoke terror in the people that uh, they considered, you know, the enemy or perpetrators or those that need to be suppressed. The th- the amazing thing about Jesus is that he he yielded to it and didn't fight even though he could have. So his response was love. Um, it in the in the book of Daniel, the future kingdoms were predicted. The last one being the feet of stone and clay uh, of the of the statue Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and that was the Roman Empire, which the Roman Empire worshipped the gods of war, and I think we still worship the gods of war, and we need. A Christian response is one of love. Easier said than done sometimes, but but that is, if we're followers of Christ, uh, you know, we need to stop worshipping war and, and love. Good thoughts in there, Nigel, because there is a Christian response, and uh, we are searching for uh, making that a little more clear as well. But if you don't have a Christian faith, if you leave God out of the picture, uh, then you may well be looking to the gods of war. Uh, a thought or two here from uh, Peter Riddell. Yes, uh, helpful comments, Nigel. Thank you. Um, I think uh, even though church observance and participation has dramatically reduced over the last 40 to 50 years in the West. There still is a strong legacy of Christian teachings, Christian values, and I think we've seen some of that legacy in the response to the Muslim communities that have suffered in Christchurch from this most recent terrible attack. I mean, undoubtedly, Christians in Christchurch and in New Zealand have responded in ways which are magnificent, that's been shown on the media. But not only Christians as well, the society at large, from the Prime Minister down, have responded with expressions of empathy and of love. And that, that is a very, that to me is very encouraging in that it shows the continuing influence of past Christian strength in the values of, of Western society. So I've been very, very, uh, very heartened by that, uh, by the response um, to the New Zealand uh, massacres. As I say, for me, uh, the point alongside it is we need to carry forward that level of response and empathy and understanding and interest to other communities in the world that are outside the cameras that are suffering suffering similar kinds of, of horrors. You might have a thought or two to offer. As we're going to continue to take some calls as we continue our conversation today, let's hear from Anne in Labrador in Queensland. Hello, Anne. Welcome along. Hello. Anne, what are your like thoughts? You- like your program, and my thoughts is um, those people who um, did have this, I pray that they will come to know the Lord because the final judgment, they will have uh, problems, um, you know, in when, when God's judgment comes. And my other uh, question is, how do we know when those people come into this country that they're not um, having another influence like terrorism and stuff? And um, what what we should do about as a government or what we should do about as a Christian. Uh, You raise a bunch of important points there that are hotly debated at uh, levels uh, where our politicians are involved in these discussions and uh, different sides take different points of view on some of those things. Uh, A a thought or two here from Peter Riddell on, on those thoughts from Anne. Uh, thank you, Neil. Yes, uh, yes, Anne. Um, on your first point, that was more by way of a comment than a question. Um, you, your second uh, 
point was a question about the question of uh, people coming in as, as immigrants and so forth. And I, I was interested to read over the weekend of the uh, uh, announcement just made by the Morrison government of um, regarding uh, immigration, um, both the levels of immigration, I note they're reducing the numbers from 190 to 160,000. Um, that's not counting refugees. Uh, but, but more interestingly, I thought, um, is the government's policy to require newly arriving immigrants to spend, to first go to regional centres, so not automatic, automatically go to uh, the big cities, Melbourne and Sydney. And I think that's a very good policy for a number of reasons. One is um, it... Uh, it helps ease congestion in the big cities and Melbourne and Sydney are growing hugely very, very rapidly. So it helps ease congestion. Secondly, it, it creates more likelihood that the newly arriving uh, immigrants will have a greater chance of integrating with the broader community rather than just uh, gathering in clusters and in ghettos in the big cities. Um, so the government has said, well, they're required to stay a certain number of years in the regional cities before or the regional location before they're entitled to citizenship. I think it's a very good policy. All right. Well, thank you so much to Anne for your comments. Uh, let's take another call. Robin is on the line from Mount Morgan in Queensland. Hi, Robin. Welcome. Yes, hello. Um, I um, wanted to share um, a post of um, a, a Christian man in Pakistan that I, I, I share a lot with. He has the most interesting posts all the time um, from the perspective of a Christian in, in a Muslim country. And uh, his reaction to that uh, New Zealand thing was he was so proud of the New Zealanders and Australians for placing flowers and, and that. And he said that when there's a, a, a bombing in Pakistan of a Christian church, they don't get any flowers. And then um, he's got some other... I tried to um, post that onto Vision, but I, I couldn't do it. But anyway, he's got another one here. The difference between killing 148 Christians in Kenya and 50 Muslims in New Zealand... And uh, he he just shares a lot of things like that and a lot of persecution that they they suffer in Pakistan from the Muslims and no one will defend them. You know, very well, there's very little defence for them. Robin, uh, wonderful thoughts, in fact, reflecting those things uh, from your friend in Pakistan. Uh, Peter, your thoughts for Robin? Uh, yes, interesting feedback from uh, from Pakistan, Robin, and that ties in with the kind of feedback I, I received from other sources myself. Um, the stories of persecution of Christians and indeed terror attacks on Christian communities is 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 you know extensive in Pakistan, tragic, and similarly uh, that's illustrating the point I was making early on that it generally doesn't get the same level of international media attention as was received in Christchurch or Paris in 2015. Uh, it's important that um, we, when there is shared suffering, that Christians and Muslims come together to to find ways of, uh, of supporting each other during that. And um, you know, the fact that there's been an attack on Muslim communities in Christchurch and their attack on Christian communities elsewhere, this is a good opportunity for if any good can come out of these terrible events. One possible good is that it draws Christians and Muslims together to talk about their shared suffering, to realise their shared humanity. And you do find occasional references to that um, in countries like Pakistan. I saw a report recently where uh, there was a, uh, an attack on a, on a community in Pakistan and Muslims and Christians came out in protest. And there have been similar reports in Egypt, but it doesn't happen enough. 
And these stories of shared suffering, can they do provide opportunities for very necessary Christian and Muslim coming together. Thank you so much to Robin from Mount Morgan. You can give us a call, be part of our conversation. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. You might like to offer your own thoughts. You might have some concerns that you'd like to air as well. 1-800-316-316. I can't help but, uh, from a couple of those calls that we've taken, uh, Peter, this idea of fear of immigration, of fear of refugees and there has to be some elements uh, who are point scoring politically that do raise those fears let's not get into uh, uh, names and parties and such things but the idea that we'll all be conscious uh, that we have had our fears pricked uh, because of uh, the thoughts of uh, of uh, Muslim immigration in particular uh, what are your thoughts for those sorts of things and uh, and, and being fearful well Political parties or governments need to formulate policy that will um, reassure the citizens of a country uh, that things are going in the right direction. And I'm talking about any country here. I'm not just talking about Australia or America or Britain. I'm also talking about Pakistan, Iran or whatever. And so any, <clears throat> any process of, of large-scale immigration... Um, in a very short space of time, can raise concerns among the resident community. For example, uh, in Lebanon, when there was massive Syrian refugee inputs, uh, arrivals in Lebanon, that caused huge um, you know, disruption and huge concerns among the Lebanese population. That's not unusual. Similarly with uh, in Iran, when there were uh, lots of Iraqis that fled over the border at a particular point in time, that raised huge concerns. So governments need to formulate immigration policies so to allow the tap to flow at a rate the resident population is going to be happy with. Um, that's why I think, the, I think the Morrison government's got it right. I think their announcement on the weekend of immigration flows and immigration locations relocating people to the regions is a very, very good policy. I think the Australian government's got it right. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. I've got to, let's take things deep here for a few moments. I happened to pick up a, uh, a conversation on the radio on my way home, driving home late, I think uh, it must have been Monday or Tuesday. And I heard a reaction that was coming from a group of Muslim women who were talking about this uh, on an ABC program that was being uh, simulcast on radio. And the interesting thing is because the terrorist in Christchurch is named, well, as a white supremacist. And what I could hear coming through in the conversation, Peter, was the idea at, that white supremacists are different to brown and black bodies. Now, I hope you can pick up my, uh, my conversation has, as this, uh, sort of, this description comes. But the idea of the white supremacist was eventually linked to the idea of this idea of white middle-aged men. And in the conversation, I picked up, and it was at a different point, it wasn't so that it was an explicit reference, but the conversation came around to white is linked with Christian. And brown and black bodies are linked with Muslims. And that's interesting because not all 
Christians are white. In fact, there's probably less white Christians in the world than there are brown and black Christians in the world. But I wonder whether the confusion around what people are saying when they're trying to politicize these things uh, comes to these sorts of descriptions about race and religion. Uh, I did say, well, let's take this thing a little bit deeper. I, I, I don't. We're in the deep water here. But what are your thoughts, Peter? Yes. Well, um, the 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 sort of the the growing slur against being white is is pure racism. It is pure racism, and um, I think it needs to be called for what it is. Um, the, the the world uh, has been increasingly sensitised to racism in various forms, but not to racism against whites. And racism against whites is no wor- is no is no better than racism against anybody else. Um, one of the things that has struck me also is um, in talking about this this madman who carried out these murders in Christchurch uh, and scoring political points. Some groups have been trying to conflate his views with conservative political views, suggesting that he is the result of conservative political views. By conservative political views, I'm talking about, for example, you know, the coalition, the governing coalition and so forth. Now, that, that can only be done when people are too lazy to look at his, his online manifesto. If you look at his online manifesto, what you find is a man who had a tangled, garbled view of the world. And which country does he most associate himself with? The People's Republic of China. Now, we wouldn't normally think of that as representing conservative political views. So he was a confused man. He is not to be conflated or associated with conservative political views. Uh, that's a very powerful point to make because uh, we had a segment uh, expressing some of those similar thoughts uh, through the earlier part of this week. And in fact, when we posted on our Facebook page an article and uh, reference there, a link to the conversation, uh, some people had thought that we had somehow rather posted the manifesto of uh, the gunman, which of course we did not. Uh, although that was what some of those who made comments on the piece uh, had thought that we had done. But uh, this idea of, uh, of, uh, of the, uh, the political motivations, uh, these are very significant because while he was spoken of early on as a right-wing white supremacist, uh, a careful look at uh, those details that come out of that manifesto, as you say, indicate that he was calling himself even an eco-fascist, uh, taking feminist uh, pursuit uh, ideals, and also relating with communist China. And so for people who thought that he was right-wing, of course, uh, that's not the case. In his own words, he's actually more a socialist, left-wing uh, supremacist. And that's uh, an interesting way that you've been able to articulate that too and uh, confirming those things, Peter. Let's take some more calls. Chris is on the line from Victoria. Hi, Chris. Welcome. Uh, good day, Neil. Yeah, I, I think all these sort of things that are happening have a more sinister and prophetic uh, leaning. I think... Um the higher power is trying to Islamicize all the Western countries in the world so that they will bring down the Judeo-Christian view as well as take away Israel's protection. Israel's only protection is to have strong um, Christian support. Now, this is, you know, it, it all leads into the end times, a prophetic plan to, you know, Israel will, st- will be alone if all the Christian voice is removed. Uh, good thoughts in there, Chris. A response from Peter. 
Uh, well, thank you, Chris. Um, I mean, you're introducing the question of uh, Israel and uh, its, uh, its uh, conflict, the Israeli-Arab conflicts, which is another huge question, of course. Um, Israel... Israel is a, a voice of, of democracy in the Middle East. Uh, it is a beacon of democracy in the Middle East, and it's, it's under all sorts of pressures of its own. Um, but uh, I think it's, it's too big another question to introduce into this conversation at this point in time. Okay, thank you so much to Chris. And I think, uh, Chris, you're making some reference there to uh, things that are happening in last days, end times, anticipating uh, these sorts of things rising and uh, different conflicts that might be, uh, whether they are verbal conflicts, uh, ideological conflicts, or even uh, physical conflicts. But let's take another call. Let's hear from Jonathan, who is in WA. Hello, Jonathan. Welcome. You know, Neil, when we are talking about uh, Muslim, all these things, I think that is stopping the uh, Muslim migrate to come in any other country will not solve the problem. Because uh, uh, how can you allow them, if they are in their separate country, and they need to interact Christian with them, how they will be changed? So I think allow them to go in the country that are Christian, they have do open to them to hear the gospel through the community, and they'll be moved to really accept Christ. But when they bow in their country, they are under Sharia law, they don't have the freedom to accept Christ. So I think no logic is that. Let us look for the solution. Those who are with us, to evangelize them, and that they have free will to accept Christ. That's the only way. Jonathan, you... Uh... In a Muslim country... No freedom. They are bound. Okay, people who are in some Muslim countries, completely bound, uh, get free from that, come to a country like Australia where they have some freedom to even be exposed to the Christian message. Uh, this is an important element, and when you start to think about a big picture of what's going on, context for the way that the world is uh, behaving and things that are changing, uh, your thoughts for uh, for Jonathan, Peter? Well, Jonathan, thank you for those comments. I mean, this is one of the one of the beauties of uh, the freedoms of West, the West, and not only the West, but some other non-Western countries where there is freedom of religious choice. Ultimately, um, I support the uh, the United Nations call for every person living on this on the face of this earth to be free to choose the religion of their choice. And indeed, as Muslims come into Australia or into Europe, um, they're able to make choices because uh, they're coming to free countries. And indeed, you know, many Muslims um, in, who have come to the West have chosen to, um, become, uh, to become Christians. There's, the growth of ex-Muslim churches is quite extensive. So you make a very good point, uh, Joseph. Thank you so much, Jonathan in WA. Let's take one more call. Lester is on the line from Brisbane. Hello, Lester. Welcome. Yeah, good day, mate. How are you going? Very well. What are your thoughts, Lester? Mate, I'm just asking a question. Um, it seems to me that um, a lot of the conflict is between Muslims and Christians. Um, you don't seem to have any conflict with Hinduism or Buddha or any other religion. It's mainly between this these two. Um, well, why is that? Uh, good thought there, Lester, because perhaps this comes back to the original intent of our conversation today about how things are reported about religious conflict. Uh, your thoughts for Lester, Peter? 
Yes, well, this is this is moving us well beyond uh, the events in Christchurch, of course. Um, I mean, there, look, um, Lester, there is a long history of uh, Christian-Muslim conflict going right back to the 7th century. Um, it hasn't always been conflict. Over 1,400 years, there have been relative, periods of relative peace and calm, but there have been, uh, you know, conflicts that have popped up again and again, um, wars and uh, attacks, conquests and so forth. Um a part of the part of the under, underlying uh, reason for the conflict, of course, is is uh, rivalry, and they, they are Christianity and Islam are both missionary faiths. Um, Islam is a faith which came after Christianity, so it claims to supersede Christianity. The core teachings of Islam teach that uh, Christianity, has been, the, the teachings of Jesus were corrupted. Therefore, uh, Islam is the true answer. So you've got conflicting claims there. And in some locations and in some periods of history, that's led to military conflict, far more than uh, Christian Buddhist or Christian Hindu conflict. Those religions are much further removed from each other. And is it the case, while Lester's still on the line as he talks about uh, what gets reported about Hindu conflicts or Buddhist conflicts, that when you've got particular nations where uh, those religious groups are a part of a intensifying nationalism, uh, that those conflicts do in fact eventuate, and there are conflicts there uh, between Christians and uh, and Hindus and Christians and Buddhists. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, places like Burma or uh, things that are intensifying even in India. Uh, I mean, I'm, what about those sorts of things, Peter? Uh, yes, I mean, that's absolutely right. Uh, India is a case in point where you've got a BJP government which is which has taken Hinduism from being the, the faith of the nation to becoming a highly politicised expression of national identity. And when you get that, then you do get... you. Get conflict. So there have been, you know, there's been increased persecution of Christians and, and Muslims in India by Hindu nationalists uh, in Burma. You've had uh, these, this ongoing conflict between the, the the Buddhist majority and the the Muslim minority. And indeed, that's where nationalism has kicked in and uh, and translated religious identity to national assertiveness. Well, thank you so much to Lester in Brisbane. We'll put any line under any more calls there. Uh, Thanks to everyone who's called in and made a contribution to our conversation today. I think it's been a a valuable conversation to have. Uh, Peter, you are widely published on all sorts of uh, fabulous issues, bringing your insights. Uh, You've been writing about this one of recent times. Uh, Where can people access uh, some of your most uh, recent articles? Ah oh, yes, well, my um, my my most recent article on the Christchurch uh, attacks is found on the Interface In- Institute website. That's Interface Institute one word dot org. Uh, and there you'll find my article on this. Uh, more broadly, uh, if, if my name is googled, um, you'll find many of my publications in different locations. And of course, I'm based at Melbourne School of Theology, so. Um, that's another route to to locate the kind of work that I'm doing. And while we're just talking about the Melbourne School of Theology and uh, listeners, long-time listeners to this program will know that there's a number of identities that uh, I speak to from time to time from the Melbourne School of Theology because uh, there is a fabulous uh, study uh, platform that you have in place where people can have a deeper understanding of all of these sorts of inter-religious uh, issues that are arising. Uh, what can you tell us about the studies at the Melbourne School of Theology? 
Yes, well, Melbourne School of Theology has a specialised centre called the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam, and the purpose of that centre is to enable um, Christians who are interested in, in studying Islam and Christian-Muslim relations, the history of Christian-Muslim relations or present Christian-Muslim relations, to come and do some studies. We have, for those who live in the region locally, we have some uh, courses, some day courses that are available that are non-accredited, and for those who want to take an accredited course, they can sign up for a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or even, even a doctorate if they wish. Well, Peter Riddell, so valuable your insights. Uh, let me just mention those websites where people can go to for further information uh, for some of those articles that Peter's written. Either Google Peter Riddell or go to interfaceinstitute.org or you can go to the Melbourne School of Theology website and find out some more details about the sorts of intense study that you can do to understand these things much more deeply and even from an academic point of view. mst.edu.au That's Melbourne School of Theology, mst.edu.au Professor Peter Riddell, who's the Vice Principal Academic at the Melbourne School of Theology, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us today on 2020. Thank you, Neil. It's been a pleasure. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.